there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's it going? If you're tuning into this episode while you're at the gym or running or out for a hike, you are in exactly the right place because my next guest is going to inspire you to start sweating and feel the burn. So grab your mug and take a chug because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And oh my God, goodness. Get ready for the endorphin rush you're about to get from listening to my next guest, Joe DeSina. Joe is the founder and CEO of Spartan, the world's largest obstacle race and endurance brand, and is someone who's demonstrated his entrepreneurial drive since his pre-teens after building a multi-million dollar pool and construction business while he was in college and creating a Wall Street trading firm. Joe set his sights on inspiring a hundred million people to get off their couches and created the Spartan lifestyle. With more than 1 million annual global participants at more than 200 events across more than 30 countries, Spartan offers heats for all fitness levels and ages. The brand has also transformed more than 5 million lives since it was founded in 2010. Joe is also the host of the Spartan Up podcast and video series and the best-selling author of Spartan Up, Spartan Fit, and his newest book just came out in September called The Spartan Way. Joe, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I don't drink coffee. If I drank coffee, we would really be in trouble, but I'm ready to go. Okay, awesome. That is what matters the most. You know, Joe, one of the many reasons I wanted to interview you is because I believe absolutely in my core that Java junkies, whether they're athletes or not, should experience some kind of, and I'm deliberately going to use the word grueling, physical challenge as a way to help them break through the obstacles, whatever they may be in their own minds. Is that one of the reasons you found it, Spartan? Yeah, I, I found it Spartan because I felt like the world was shifting in the wrong direction. All of the advancements we talk about in the world, all of the technology, all of these luxuries, they get us sitting more, they get us more inactive, less connections to other human beings and the environment. And so Spartan was really a way to bring people back to the Flintstones, back to carrying heavy things, sweating, breathing heavy, connected to the land, a giant community, because the world needs it, especially the first world. And I also believe that if you take yourself out of your comfort zone, so uh, this morning, for example, I'm carrying a kettlebell to and from my home to the office, right? And so I've got to lift it. I've got to get it up the stairs. It's a nightmare. But what it does is when I put the kettlebell down, when I put the obstacle away, it makes life's obstacles that much easier to deal with, if that makes sense. So are you holding the kettlebell right now? I'm holding the kettlebell. And how heavy is it? 42 pounds. It's a nightmare. You're holding a 42-pound kettlebell while you talk to me. This is my java. This is my cup of coffee. I thought about it the other morning. I thought, you know, it's hard to get going without coffee, right? And I was thinking, I should make a t-shirt that says, you know, burpees uh, is a cup of coffee or something like that. Because when you, once you get your heart started and you start sweating or you're carrying a kettlebell or a sandbag or whatever, 
your your body has to adapt and get going. It's a fight or flight mechanism. So, Joe, how do you think the Spartan way can help 18 to 25 year olds? And by that, we're really talking about young people who are in college and those who've recently graduated. Well, so the Spartan way is a book where we attempted, I attempted uh, with a team here to put nine, 10 ancient principles together in one place. And I thought to myself, there's so many people listening to podcasts like yours or mine or others. There's so many people reading books uh, voraciously. But those books and those podcasts and those things don't necessarily change people's lives. You actually have to do something with it, with that knowledge that you gain, right? And these ancient principles that I listed in the book, they're not particularly unique. You've probably heard of them before. They've been around for 2,500 plus years. And But if you can master them, if you can actually roll up your sleeves and say, you know what, I'm going to take this in and I'm going to start living these principles, everything in your life is going to be better. Everything. You're, you're going to reach financial freedom. You're going to have better relationships. You're going to be happier at work. Like everything in your life will be better. But it doesn't come with a magic pill. It's going to require that you literally do the work. And if you don't do the work, then you're going to have to listen to more podcasts and read more books because <laughs> nothing's going to happen. So how did the idea to incorporate the Spartan lifestyle from thousands of years ago first come to you? I grew up in Queens. I grew up in a neighborhood called Howard Beach, and it was organized crime capital of the world. And people were tough. And it was bordered by uh, East New York. And East New York was the toughest neighborhood in New York. It still might be. And I, I guess myself, my sister, people that lived there, we would just ask ourselves subconsciously the questions, you know, could, are we tough enough? Could we handle, uh, people would go to jail, people would get killed. And then as that's going on in the background, and I'm growing up as a young kid, my mother finds yoga, meditation, health food. She becomes a vegan. She starts hanging out with monks and gurus. And she introduces me and my sister to a 3,100-mile foot race in Queens, New York, around a one-mile loop. So in the background, you've got organized crime. Then you've got my mom that finds a health food store and this whole new way of living, which didn't exist at all in the 70s in Queens. And then uh, I see this, this race, this 3,100-mile foot race. And like, Oh my God, the human spirit, human beings are capable of so much more than what we think we are. And it was so Spartan. Like everything about that was so Spartan. And so I started doing the research and I built a bunch of businesses over the years and I've had all kinds of employees. And I started to, uh, I started to say to myself, you know what, this is a better way. And I've got to share this. I got to share this with the world. I got to share a little, a little mobster, a little monk, a little foot race, right? This whole thing with the world. So are you saying you were first introduced to the Spartan and literally the word Spartan when you were back in high school? Oh, at, at least at least high school. I mean, it, listen, that word is prevalent in our vocabulary, in our dictionaries around the world. There's not a country I go to where young people don't know what it means. So it's well before the movie 300 came out. And so when was it, at what age did you say okay, now I'm turning this into endurance races. I'm going to start creating that. I, uh, around 2000, around 18 years ago, I said to myself, I was doing races myself and I was, it was transformative for me. Everybody I, that I looped into a race, it was transformative for, they loved it. And I'm an entrepreneur at heart. 
And so back 18 years ago, I said, we're going to put on events. We're going to rip people off the couch. We're going to get them to feel what it feels like to be outdoors, to be sweating, to be breathing heavy, reconnected. And I started to get people to do it. So it was, it was 18 years ago and, and it wasn't easy and it's still not easy because people would prefer to watch a movie with popcorn and soda. <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah. that's a lot, e- that's a lot easier to sell. Absolutely. Now, Joe, you've done how many of these races? Oh my God. I've raced all over the world now for 20 plus years. And, uh, I've done more races than I could count. We put on as Spartan, I put on 275 events a year, so across 41 countries. So we plenty, plenty of races, more than I care to remember. So take us into one of the more difficult races that you've done and what it feels like. I've heard people talk about the ultra marathons and some of these endurance races as being almost it's a spiritual experience. Yeah, I would say it's very meditative. So I, I did a, a race in Alaska called the uh, I Did a Rod. It's a dog sled race across Alaska. I did it by foot. And I was out there in the waist deep snow. It was a terrible, terrible storm for, I don't know, 10 plus days. And I'm literally out there dying and freezing and my eyelashes are frozen and I'm with my teammates. And I, I would say that race, but very much like the other races I, would, I was doing, which were also grueling, uh, a very long distance, multi-day, you got to a place where you just wanted to survive. And when you get to a place where you just want to survive, where you just want water, food, and shelter, that's a very refreshing place to be. And what I mean by that is once you can get all the baggage out of your head, things that are irrelevant in life, the things you worry about, things you think about, things that consume you that aren't related to just water, food, and shelter, well, that's exhausting, right? That's, um, it's a waste of time. And when you get to this very refreshing place, it's, it's meditative, it's spiritual, it's awesome. I mean, I, I wish I could live in that place, in, in that mental state, because it's so simple. Just water, food, and shelter. How has being a Spartan changed your life? Well, I think I was caught up just like everybody's caught up in chasing dollars and commercialism and buying cool stuff and a lot of things that don't matter. And I think racing and taking on a Spartan lifestyle, taking cold showers, pushing myself in the workouts, eating healthier, going to bed earlier, not drinking the, the alcohol, not doing the desserts. Listen, the mind, the human mind lives inside of this body. And we only get one of them. And if you want the mind to really perform well, well, then you got to really take care of the body. And so, so living this Spartan lifestyle has helped me just be clearer and healthier and, and more effective. Those are all great things. In a recent interview you did, Joe, you and your guests discussed why young people should seek a rite of passage and embrace discipline and hardship. Could you share the big takeaways from that interview with the Java Junkie community? Yeah, like a rite of passage we, we used to do, uh, many cultures used to do around the world um, when, when a person was coming of age, uh, a man or a woman. And, and I think we've lost that. We've certainly lost that in America. Israel, for example, right? The kids still do a year in the military. And I think everybody needs to do something like that at some point in their life, if not at 18, at some point, because you need to find out who you are. And you need to you need a real introspective. And that occurs when you push yourself really hard, when you get to that place I spoke of, of just wanting water, food and shelter. You you learn a lot about yourself. You get closer to finding out what your true north is. You start to get out of your comfort zone. 
which is really healthy. I mean, that's that's the only time we grow is when we're out of our comfort zone. So I, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to let Java Junkies know that there's a little construction going on at the Spartan headquarters, which is why you hear a bunch of voices in the background. We may even hear some hammering and some other construction we, um, noises. We're installing um, beds of nails so that while people are working, they can lay on a bed of nails. So they're they're ripping up the carpet and putting down nails everywhere. Are you serious? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're redoing, I, we're redoing the offices. I, you know what? I, I had to ask that because there was a part of me that was thinking, yeah, I bet they do that at Spartan. <laughs> That's funny. Joe, I love your website and I recommend Java Junkies check it out at Spartan.com. And what I especially love about it is that you've got a whole section that's dedicated to Spartan Up videos and podcasts. And I watched a bunch of them. One in particular talked about the importance of not being a clock puncher. That was the way this person described it. That the Spartan way is to go above and beyond your job description. Can you elaborate? I actually learned that from um, an organized crime boss who lived next door to me as a kid. And he had me clean his swimming pool. And week after week, I would go back there and I'd clean the pool. And he taught me and he said, Joe... If I'm paying you $35 to clean the pool, first of all, you better get there early. So so I don't want to find out you're 10 minutes late. You should be there 10 minutes early. Second thing is you need to go above and beyond. So although I'm only paying you to clean the pool, I want you to straighten the lawn furniture. I want you to clean out the shed. I want this place to look magnificent. So when I come home and see the work that you've done, I say to myself, I can't live without this guy. And so that just became my mantra. And when you look at anybody successful in the business world, any service provider, any employee, the ones that get in earlier, the ones that grab the mop before they're asked to do it, the ones that pick up the garbage after themselves, those are the people that you can't live without, whether it's a a relationship, whether it's an employee boss, whoever it is, right? The people that go above and beyond that, that, that aren't just watching stuff happen, but they're actually making stuff happen. Those are the people that get shit done in life and they, they make the world turn. Absolutely. And I got to say, if your next door neighbor had not been a mob boss, I would say, man, that was amazing advice. The fact that he was a mob boss, that must have lit an extra fire under you. Oh, without a doubt. It was, if I don't clean the shed, what could happen? But it really taught me. And the great news is that was probably early 80s. And if you fast forward to late 80s, we were get we, the United States, were getting our butts kicked by the Japanese. Other companies were doing so much better than American companies because we had just lost our way. We weren't providing great customer service. And there's a story that comes out um, in the early 90s, late 80s from Nordstrom's. Everybody here knows Nordstrom's. And the story goes something like this, that a a customer walked into Nordstrom's and said, hey, I want to return these tires. I'm not happy with them. And the customer service representative of Nordstrom's took the tires back and gave the customer their money back. The great part about the story is Nordstrom's doesn't sell tires. But they did it anyway. They went above and beyond for their customer. Now, obviously, it's not sustainable to refund people on you know act of purchases they made that didn't actually occur at your store. But think about this. It's 28 years later, and we're talking about this story. So like, if you go above and beyond, no one will forget it. Whether you're a company, whether you're an individual, people remember those that get stuff done and go above and beyond. A hundred percent. And I'll add another, at least one other thing to that equation. And that is the attitude that you have when you're doing it. 
the people who have stood out to me the most over the years have been the ones that have a great attitude. No matter what you ask them to do, absolutely can do. Even if they don't know how to do it, they are going to try to figure it out. They will just get it done by hook or by crook. Absolutely. Joe, having read your bio, it is apparent. I mean, the fact that you were entrepreneurial beginning in your preteen years, the fact that you started this pool and construction business when you were in college, this entrepreneurial spirit is a part of who you are. How can those Java junkies who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves entrepreneurial, don't have that mindset and would maybe more fall into the category of being couch potatoes, what advice can you give them to cultivate that mindset? So I've learned a lot of tricks over the years myself. And then we've done, I podcasted and interviewed, you know, call it 300 successful people. And there are little tricks that we can apply to our own lives to get us going. So the first one is, you know, people say, Joe, I'm not really motivated. How do I get motivated? Okay. What you got to do is figure out what your true north is. What is the thing that you would do in life, even if you knew you'd fail? A lot of people talk about like, what would you do if you had all the money in the world? What would you do if it was your last day on earth? Those are great questions, but but a better question is, what would you do if you knew you'd fail? Because if you know you're gonna fail, but you love it so much, you would do it anyway, that's probably what your true north is. I asked that question once and a guy said to me, I would just smoke a bunch of weed and live in a mansion on top of LA. And I thought, (laughs) that's not the answer we were looking for. But um, it can't be an answer like that, right? It's gotta be like, what we're lucky enough to be on this planet. Our parents, no matter what level of work they put in, they got us here and let's, we gotta give back. And so figure out, figure out why you're here, number one. Number two, make a commitment, but commit publicly. So like, I'm going to do a marathon. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to marry that woman. I'm going to marry that man. Whatever it is, commit publicly and tell everybody you're going to do it. Because most people, the majority of people are honorable. They're not going to want to let their friends down if they've told everybody and their family down that they're going to do something, right? So commit publicly. Three is make sure you understand that this thing, that pushing outside your comfort zone, whether it's starting a business, whatever it is, is actually going to be great, whether it succeeds or fails. It's gonna be an experience. It's gonna be unbelievable. And make sure you really understand that because the going is gonna to get tough and it's gonna suck and you're gonna to wanna to quit. But, but that whole experience, that whole journey is awesome when you reflect back on it. When we're dying and we're in a rocking chair in our 90s, we are not going to say to each other or to ourselves, I wish I sat around and watched more TV. There's no way we're gonna say that. We're going to say, I wish I would have done that thing. I wish I would have started that business. And so don't wish, just do it. I agree for sure. Joe, looking at your resume, it would seem that you have experienced one success after another. Have you ever failed? Oh, I fail every day. Failed plenty. But you got to dust yourself off. Um, You got to realize that there's always going to be somebody bigger, stronger, better, Um, you are, you know, I gotta be right 51% of the time. I don't have to be right hundred percent of the time. No one's right hundred percent of the time. So I make lots of mistakes. I don't let it get me down. And I just pick myself back up. And, you know, I remember I was a young kid. I flipped over on a little dirt bike and I was afraid to get back on. And my cousin sat me down and got me back on the horse and I didn't really understand it. And then it, and then it hit me and it just became part of my mantra and part of my life. Like you get back on that horse, you keep going. 
Joe, your new book is entitled The Spartan Way. Can you give the Time for Coffee community a quick overview of what the Spartan Way means and why they might want to adopt it? Yeah, basically, it's a way of life. And it's these ancient principles. And, and the ancient principles, the first one, no surprise, is, is find your true north. And and I go through the chapter trying to explain how to find your true north and why it's so important and giving you examples of people that have found their true north. And if you find it, it pulls you through life like a magnet. It's easy to wake up in the morning. It's easy to go the extra mile. And so, but most people, most people don't know what their true north is. They don't know what their purpose is. Um, the second one we just spoke about is commitment. And the same thing. What is commitment? How, what are the tricks of the trade? How can I commit to something? What should I do that'll make it stick? Here are some examples. Here's some great real life stories. And so I go through these principles, these ancient principles that, that apply to anybody who's successful at anything uses these principles so that you can crush, you can crush life. You're not going to crush life. If, um, I've had thousands of employees Okay, and I'm lucky if 20% of them go above and beyond and are amazing and happy and energy givers, not energy takers. And if you follow these principles, not because I wrote them, you can find them in, in other in other books, I'm sure. If you follow these principles and you really take them to heart, you will be more successful, no matter how you define success. Doesn't have to be money, could be whatever. And and um, you'll be a more successful monk, you'll be a more successful mobster, a more successful mom, <laughs> whatever it is you're doing you'll be more successful at it. That's what the world needs, more successful mobsters out there. (laughs) Hey, Joe, when you were in college at Cornell University, you majored in textiles. First of all, why did you pick textiles? And did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I applied to Cornell as a kind of a fun thing. I, I had no intention of going to college. I was already running that business back in Queens. My grades weren't that good. I didn't want to waste four years in school. I considered it a waste. And a friend of mine suggested we go to Cornell. I thought, well, you know, I'll do an interview, but there's no way they're going to accept me. And I just don't have the time. It wasn't part of my plan. So I did the interview. It was nice to get dressed up in a suit. The interview went well. But ultimately, um, I didn't get accepted, as I suspected. And when I didn't get accepted, I thought to myself, you know what? Now I'm interested. Now <laughs> now I want to go <laughs> because they tell me I'm not good enough. And so that summer, I went to St. John's and I took a couple of classes and I uh, learned how to study. And I was able that first semester at Cornell to go in as an extramural student. I wasn't matriculated. They didn't consider me a real student, but I could take three classes. And then hopefully at the end of the semester, I could show them, hey, look, I went to St. John's and I did well. I, I took three classes at Cornell. I proved I could handle the workload. Now would you accept me? That was my, my plan. And I did well, and I reapplied, and they didn't accept me. And again, I was, they again, didn't accept you. Did not accept me, and I was pissed. And, and their reason was a valid reason, which was, look, we can't let people come in this way because then everybody's going to skirt the, the normal process, and they're going to want to fake their way in this way. And and I said, I understand, but I'm going to do it again. And so I did a second semester and I reapplied and they did not accept me. You know, after three semesters of doing this, I was broken. I, um, I, was, I was actually opposite of what I'm describing uh, is in the Spartan way. You know, the resiliency and the grit wasn't there. I, it just, just didn't look like it was for me and I was going to move back to New York. I had a business anyway and, and maybe college wasn't for me and I wasn't for college. So my mother hears of this and she says, look, I have a friend that I teach yoga to at Cornell. Would you mind meeting her? And I said, I don't, I don't mind. What's her name? Professor uh, Anita Racine. And so I sat down for lunch with her and 
Uh, she said, how are you doing? I told her, she said, do you have any interest in textiles? And I said, I, I love uh, textiles. I didn't really know what textiles were, but I sell some t-shirts on the side as a business. And she said, okay, well, we have this department, this textile department. We, we study the industry of textiles and women's fashion and design. And there are 96 women in the program, but there's no men. Uh, do you like textiles? And I thought, I love textiles. <laughs> <So> this, <laughs> this sounds fantastic. <laughs> and, and so Professor Anita Racine, she changed my life. She accepted me to Cornell, to her department. And if I had to do it all over again, I would, I would study uh, textiles again because I can go to any movie. I can watch anything on Netflix. Before I go to bed, I tend to watch 30 minutes of something to, to calm down. And um, I can tell you what era that movie is from based on women's hemlines because of my degree at Cornell. But, but joking aside, I, I really did learn a lot because it was a tumultuous industry at a tumultuous time. There were so many uh, U.S. textile mills that were going out of business and there were quota changes and it really taught us international business, which was, which was awesome. And so when you graduated, did you know what you were going to do with that degree? I got offered a job at Fieldcrest Cannon to sell towels for $35,000 a year in a, in a station wagon. And um, at the same time, I had my business. I was probably generating you know, $150,000 plus per year in profits back in Queens. And I thought, I am not going to go sell towels. So I took my degree and did nothing with it and went and ran my business. But I had the cachet and the credentials of having graduated from an Ivy League college, which was a big deal to me, first in my family. There were very few people, if any, that came out of the neighborhood and went uh, to college, let alone an Ivy League. And um, so I was, I was psyched. Ultimately, ultimately, I sold my business and I went to Wall Street. And I think the fact that I had graduated Cornell helped me get my first job. And so how did you end up going to Wall Street and what did you do there? I had a buddy of mine that I had met at, at Cornell who was... Uh, God, at the time, he was probably 55 years old. And he saw a spark in me. He saw this attitude of not getting, you know, just never quitting and going above and beyond everything you and I have talked about. And he said, Joe, you got to go to Wall Street. You got to sell your construction company. Um, you're wasting your future. And I was resistant to it because, I, as again, I had all these mobsters as customers. I felt like the big man on campus. I was making lots of money. I had employees and trucks, uh, heavy equipment. You know, I just felt cool. And he begged me to go, and he finally convinced me to go get an interview. And I took the interview, and I got the job, and I took 10 steps backwards because that was a $35,000 a year job as well. But, but I was willing to do it because I thought I could make more money in a shorter period of time and eventually get to a place where I had some financial freedom and could do something really cool with my life and settle down and have a family and not have the stresses that I saw my mother and father have, um, financial stresses. And how long did that take? How long were you on Wall Street before you reached that point? Oh, I think I did like 11, 11 years, 11, 12 years. I did my time. I, I made some money and then we moved to Vermont. Um, I had met my wife, my awesome wife. Today's our anniversary. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. Happy 15, anniversary. 15 years. And, and, um, and we have four children and uh, yeah, so it was, it was awesome. Joe, how did you become interested in ultra marathons? My understanding is that it kind of took root when you moved to Pittsfield, Vermont. Well, I guess um, I had seen that race as a young kid in Queens, that 3,100 mile run. And then I had a friend push me to do, while I was in finance, like 5K and then 5K led to a marathon. And then one day I said, you know, I wonder if I could run 40 miles. I don't know. I was just always intrigued and in seeing what I was capable of. So I grabbed a bottle of water and I ran 40 miles. 
And um, I did it with no money because I didn't want the opportunity to quit and take a taxi. And then from there, it just kept going. Like, I wonder if I could run 100. I wonder if I could run 200. I wonder if I could run 300. And I was just always intrigued at, at what was possible. And it made me feel good. And it was very meditative. And certainly in Vermont, it provided me the, the environment to run every day in the mountains and disappear for 13 hours and just go have fun. Uh, and then bring people out and do it. But but it had started actually before that. Okay. So how do you work out now? What is your daily routine and how do you build that into what I'm sure is an incredibly busy day because of all that you're doing professionally? I am um, carrying a kettlebell around right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to exercise, but I I have body weight movements that I do every day religiously. They're non negotiable, and the KPIs I use to to keep track of whether or not I'm getting healthier or not are around mobility and flexibility. Right? I've got to I've got to have some strength. Got to be able to lift the kettlebell, lift my kids, etc. I've got to have some endurance. We all do. I got to be able to run if I had to run. Some speed, some agility, and and but but the key the key for me is mobility and flexibility because I want to I want to live a long time and I want to be mobile. I don't want to be uh, constrained to a chair, right? And so I have this routine of fifteen exercises that I do religiously. Burpee is one of them, and then on top of that, I I exercise whenever I get a moment. I take the stairs instead of an escalator or an ele- elevator. I I carry the kettlebell. I have a pull-up bar in the office. I'll do pull-ups. I do conference calls while pulling a rope. I have a rope machine that my buddies over at a company called RopeFlex sent me. And I just, I'll sit there with my phone just having the rope go around in circles. Joe, you're clearly somebody who has had all kinds of passions over the course of your life. What advice do you have for Java junkies who may not yet have found their passion in life? I think the way you find that I've been doing this a long time, like I said, I had a lot of employees, I talked to a lot of people, you're not going to find it on the couch. In other words, if you don't know what your passion is, you can't sit still. You know, maybe you don't want to be a cook uh, or, or uh, a bartender or you don't want to clean swimming pools, whatever those things are. But, but let's say those opportunities are the ones in front of you right now. You don't sit idle and say, well, I don't like those. I'm not going to do them. I'm going to wait for the perfect opportunity. No, you just... A body in motion stays in motion. So you get active. You go do that thing that's not ideal. And that thing leads to the next thing, which leads to another thing. And then eventually, if you're really in tune and you're thinking about it, you're taking care of yourself, you will find the thing that you're crazy about. But you got to be in motion to find it. You don't find it on the couch. Joe, in one of your recent interviews that you had, you were interviewing your guest on your podcast, you were discussing how sometimes the worst thing that you're going through in your life can turn out to be the best thing that's happened to you. And I've seen that happen time and again in my own life. And one of the questions that I try to ask all my time for coffee guests is to share a time in their life when they struggled professionally. Can you share that with us and how you came through the other side? I mean, I've, stuck, I've struggled. I've had all kinds of struggles I, like anybody else. You dust them off. I mean, think about in your life, everybody listening right now, think about those tough times and how stressed out you are and how awful it was. It's not even a memory anymore. You move past it. It makes you stronger. It makes you smarter. It's almost like a gift. Like, like I, I have one guy that texts me back and forth, one of our customers, and he'll say to me, I hope you have a terrible day today. And, <laughs> and, and what he's saying is like, because that's good. I don't make, you know, you want tough times. You welcome them. You embrace them. 
so I agree with you. Look, think about working out. Most people don't want to work out, right? But have you ever had a bad workout? No. You never had a bit. There's no bad workout. There's no tough times that are like you, you push through, you get better. If you could go back to college, back to Cornell or wherever it is and do it all over again, based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I guess the advice I would give myself now and, and for those listening is be a little more patient. It doesn't come right away. I think when I think back to the young Joe, I wanted, um, I wanted everything right away. And it's a long game, even though life is short, and I'll say life is short, it's actually a lot longer than you think. And if you just keep trotting along and put one foot in front of the other, you will get there. And so my impatience at times has, has cost me, but because I dusted off, uh, it hasn't cost me very much. But if, how would that apply if you were back at college? If I was back at college, well, I definitely would study textiles. I definitely would have kept reapplying. I think you'd have to go back to high school and say, Joe, you should have studied more because I wouldn't have had to go through all those headaches to get into Cornell, right? I, I just, I didn't, I had my business. I was so focused on building my business and I wasn't focused on, on education. I'll tell you what I would have did differently in college. I would have joined like a rowing team. I didn't, I wasn't very integrated in the actual college. I didn't go out. I didn't go to parties. And not that I'm suggesting partying because that's the opposite of what I'm saying. I, I would have met more people. All I did was study and focus on my business. And it would have been nice to be part of that community, um, to have some friends from, from back then, if that makes sense. It does. Joe, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community today. I greatly appreciate you making time for us. Am I the only person ever that said I don't drink coffee during the Time for Coffee podcast? You're not, but you uh, are the first person to be holding a 40-something pound kettlebell while we did the interview. All right. I, I wanted to win at something. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.